You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. Today on the show, we are joined by Douglas Murray. Douglas is a best-selling author, journalist, and political commentator. In this hour-long episode, Douglas joins us for a conversation about the revised edition of his best-selling book, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity. In this conversation with Douglas, we wanted to find out what the hell is going on in society at the minute. Why is there so much tribalism? How has corona affected the social justice movement? We discuss some of the most challenging, complex, and divisive issues facing society today that include Black Lives Matter, Sam Smith, white privilege, woke supermarkets, why we need to be brave now more than ever, and there is so, so much more that we discuss with Douglas today. Just as a reminder before we kick this off, every single Monday we release a healthy, wealthy and wise newsletter, which is a completely ad-free format, which we release once a week, no spam, no marketing, no politics, all the signal, less of the noise, to distill to you the articles, journals, advice, best books, which we found from the previous week. This is completely free. I will put a link below should you wish to subscribe. And the best way in which you could help support this show and this journey that we've been on is to leave us a five-star iTunes review and to share our content with a friend. Without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Douglas Murray. Douglas, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Such a pleasure. So you have brought out a new updated edition of The Madness of Crowds. Mm -hmm. In it, we've got gay, women, race, and trans. So mm -hmm. I have just updated my CV just before my podcast gets <laughs> taken off the air. <laughs> so what made you uh, update the book? Well, uh, uh, The Madness of Crowds came out in 2019, and uh, almost exactly a year ago. And it warned about the way in which identity issues were becoming as dominant as they've become. That is that... Uh, Everybody is meant to be explained and explicable by their sex or gender, uh, by their sexuality, by their race, and, uh, and a few other things. And I think this whole thing is reductionist. I think it ignores our complexity and its interestingness as human beings. And I think that the politics that comes from it is rancid. And in the year since uh, the book came out uh, in America, the US and elsewhere, um, all of the issues I warn about have really sort of just metastasized. Uh, so that I thought that by the time it was almost a year 
on i thought that i should do an updated version and that's what's that's what's now out in uh, in all english speaking countries is an updated version which brings us slap up to date with the uh, coronavirus with death of george floyd uh, with blm and all of the other things that have been roiling our, our our politics in the year since it first came out yeah it's interesting because when uh covid first broke out and i thought oh my family's gonna die i might might die i thought finally at least the silver lining is that the woke mob would stop debating gender pronouns and these absurdly Mm. trivial things and start focusing on you know the business of living yes Um, but oh how wrong i was so i'd love to turn this back to you and say how has corona um had an impact on the social justice movement well, I, I had the same instinct as you. I thought if we're all going to lose significant chunks of our loved ones, uh, we are unlikely to have great tolerance for people going on about pronouns. Uh, that, that was my hope, uh, um, but it didn't last very long. Uh, I mean, I should note there was a moment of coming together, certainly in our own country. Uh, it didn't happen in America, where I'm sitting at the moment. Uh, but in Britain, there was a moment of national unity where we sort of, you know, we coalesce and realize actually as a nation, we need to, you know, get through this. Um, it, it's worth remembering that for a nanosecond before we move on, that, that it is possible we have reserves of, of trust and, 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 you know, affiliation that we'd forgotten about. Uh, but that, then it, it inevitably started breaking apart in, in the weeks that followed. I think as the as the realization came that the virus wasn't as deadly as we first feared, that it wasn't a plague and you know of historic proportions, although it certainly is very deadly for many people, and it certainly had a terrible impact on all of our lives. Uh, nevertheless, I think as people started to realize that it wasn't you know the Black Death, uh, people started to get back to their usual habits of seeing things. You know, people people are very. Um, I mean, this is this is the case with all of us. We're very bad at seeing outside of the paradigms which we've set for ourselves. And you know, if you've if you've set your paradigm, for instance, I mean, this can happen in any way. If you decide, you know, I'm a free marketeer, and then something comes along that requires a massive government intervention, you're, you're likely to have an instinct that says, actually, I, I, I'm against the government intervention, whether it's right or not. It's just one example. Well, there's a generation of people. Uh, uh, who have been told that everything in the world can be understood by looking at it through the lens of patriarchy uh, or cis-heteronormativity or any of the other bollocks that they've taught themselves and been taught and told throughout their lives. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, when something like a pandemic comes along, which very few people have been thinking about uh, in the period before, if you are one of those people who said everything can be understood because of the patriarchy, then how, how, how does the pandemic fit into that? You know, is it, is it old white men who gave us the pandemic? Uh, uh, you know, your, your mind start, the, the mind starts to work out ways in which this new thing can fit into the pre-existing set of ideas. And, and a lot of people do do that. I mean, we all do it in our little ways, but, but the identitarians of the far left who've been obsessing about identity politics in recent years, uh, they are completely stuck in this. And they started, you could see it happening, they started to try to find ways to adapt to this new scenario. And 
the ways they came up with were, were characteristically pitiful and shallow. But they were things like, you know, oh, um, men are, w women are suffering disproportionately from coronavirus and men. You know, and, and who outside some weird cult would want to indulge in a game like that? Uh, well, it's worse than that. Who but members of a weird cult who need to see everything adapt to their viewpoint would persist even when the facts prove otherwise. So uh, when it sh was shown that actually men disproportionately die or men die in larger numbers from the coronavirus, these same people w were just adamant to keep with their pre-existing ideas. Uh, well, the men might be doing the dying, but the women are doing the suffering, this sort of thing. And this was written in major publications, major newspapers uh, um, across the Western world, across the English-speaking world in particular. And, uh, and so, yes, these people all tried to adapt uh, to the new uh, situation. And then they had their best chance uh, with the uh, killing of George Floyd uh, at the end of May. And at that point, those people who had spent all their lives saying everything is to be understood through the prism of race and specifically white racism towards other people uh, had their best uh, open goal for a while and they took it and they ran at it with everything they had. And they, they did it so much that they actually used it to trump the coronavirus. Uh, and this wasn't a fringe thing. Hundreds of American uh, scientists and experts in medical fields signed a joint letter uh, agreeing that BLM protests superseded the coronavirus as, an, as, as a matter of importance. They said, yes, it's true that we've said that nobody can gather. It's true that, you know, we've all been told not to meet our friends and family for months and been locked in our houses. It's true that the medical uh, advice is not to mix, but there is one exception. And the one exception these hundreds of healthcare professionals said was BLM. And it was because they said um, systemic racism is uh, also a pandemic. And uh, so it, 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 and it trumps uh, coronavirus. It trumps social distancing. It trumps all of that. And uh, I think this is simultaneously both totally reprehensible and wholly predictable. Because if you, if you see the whole world through the prism of skin color and playing these dark, unpleasant hierarchical games of who wins where and who should win and who has the right to speak and who has the right to, et cetera. If you're doing all that, then of course you've got to, you've got to try to adapt the new you know, existing uh, order that we're in in the pandemic era to your points of view and that's what they've done they said yeah okay sure there's this pandemic that's locked us all in our houses but racism i love it man i love it and you know i think that the the silver lining in the pandemic for me what really comforted me um, you know, a time when I thought all my loved ones were going to die was mm. Mr. Sam Smith, you know, notorious for yes. writing the worst Bond song of all time. Um, the very worst against <laughs> very against very stiff competition. I mean, other people have really tried to, to do a stinkers uh, with Bond theme tunes, but he, he yeah, no, I agree. He, 
He, he has raised the bar, absolutely. So what what did you make of uh, Mr. Smith shedding his woke tears uh, at his woke mansion? <laughs> yes, I mean, I mentioned that, as you know, in the, in, in the new edition, because uh, it seemed to me it might have been an inflection point, a point at which people realised, uh, actually, we don't want that. Uh, the public sympathy for all these silly games, the they-them business the non-binaryism, the genderqueer business, the look at meism, all of that, 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 that this wasn't suitable for the, for the time we found ourselves in. Now, I, I, I thought that that was an epitome of it. But, uh, and he epitomized a certain type of spoilt celebrity who we shouldn't be as interested in as we are. And we shouldn't spend as much mental bandwidth on them as we do because they don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're doing. They just want to sell albums. They want a bit of publicity. And uh, I hoped that in an era that was becoming serious, because we had serious concerns, we would become less and less interested in... I mean, it's, it's not fair to say unserious people, because of course he's an unserious person. There's no reason for him not to be. It's just that, it's just that when somebody who, who sings and dances for a living does end up wielding disproportionate cultural power, um, you do have to, in a way, take them seriously and attack them seriously. Um, but that moment, I think, uh, you know, it, 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 it registered with quite a lot of people and it passed. And already there are people doing those, those, those games again. It, I, I think all of, that, all of those ones, all the gender sort of silliness has definitely gone down a notch for now. Because, as I say, there's a sort of limited uh, attention span we have and, 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 a, and a limited tolerance uh, for nonsense. I mean, sometimes it seems limitless the amount of nonsense we, we can take in. But actually, again, I mean, you know, we, we are in Britain, uh, you know, we're in, in all countries, we're facing not just large death tolls from the coronavirus, but, but a worldwide economic depression. Uh, massive numbers of people are already losing their jobs. Massive numbers of people will in the months ahead. And the question then is, you know, is among other things, um, what else can you take on board and contend with? What else are you willing to to have your your head and mental space filled up with? And what serious matters are you willing to listen to? And which are you willing to push away? And we don't know the answer to that yet. And it's never totally settled. Um, but I think that some of the frivolity might fall away still. But there's no doubt that on, the, for instance, the race issue, uh, there are too many people with a very vested interest in whipping this up, whipping it along, making it worse, and uh, making careers out of it as well, it has to be said. There's a huge, huge amount of careerism in the anti-racism business, just as there is, it or was, in some of the gender nonsense. Very recently, I read a, um, a very moving letter sent out by um, Dr. Piotr Chavinsky, who is the um, director at the Auschwitz Memorial. I'm not sure if you saw this. And he basically sent out a letter to the president of Nigeria in regards to a 13-year-old Nigerian boy that had been arrested and sent to jail for 10 years due to blasphemy. Hmm. And in this letter, um, Chavinsky basically said, look, I will pay you know, for this, little, for this young man's career I will pay to educate him. And I'm also willing to serve his prison sentence to have him freed. Wow. So I wonder why in the West, in the freest society on earth, 
do we spend all this time? You know, I mean, it seems paradoxical that in the West we do this, when in other societies it doesn't seem like they do. You're right. Uh, by the way, I mean, is what we're talking about so far has been particularly English-speaking people's phenomenon. I mean, it's a, it's a tendency of the, the developed um, modern English-speaking world. There is a lot of it in uh, Spanish-speaking countries, French-speaking countries and elsewhere, but there's a little bit less tolerance for it in my own experience, and when, when we were all able to travel a lot, I, I, that was my estimation as well as from following all the press and the media and the politics in the various countries. Um, uh, my own view is that it's a, what, you, what we're talking about is a product of many things. Um, some people might give a spin on it that it's a product of a kind of decadence. Um, there, there's something in that. I, I think it's something else. I think there is to a great extent, um, type of boredom um, people want grand schemes to involve themselves in they would like to then this is one of the reasons we're, we're obsessed with heroic moments in history and that, that's not all bad by any means we're obsessed by heroic moments in history in part because we wish we could be in them and we always wish we could be in them as long as you know we're on the winning side and we know it's the winning side and we survive but uh, it's the same with civil rights movements People would have liked to have been at the Stonewall Inn in 1968. They would have liked to have been with Martin Luther King in the March on Washington. They would have liked to have been with the first and second wave feminists. They would have, they would have loved being with the suffragettes. Uh, but all this happened before them. And they live in the wake of it, and they're very happy to live in the wake of it. But they resent the lack of meaning because the, the meaning these movements gave people was very substantial. The social capital people accrued from being in them. This wasn't why everyone was in them by any means, but the social capital accrued from being in such a movement was very significant. And a lot of people would like that. They'd like the social capital. They'd like to be able to tell everyone else what to do from a position of perceived authority, moral authority. And it's quite hard to find. I mean, you, you give a good example there of somebody with some moral authority, but uh, it's quite hard to find how to get moral authority in our age. All, all people who issued it, having been debunked and, uh, and uh, disliked in turn. Uh, so there, 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 is, there is something in that, the boredom of not having a major cause. And, and, and the question, the much bigger question, which I'm forever trying to, to, to get people onto, which is, what ought we to be doing? Um, you know, I say in the madness of crowds that I'm um, I'm just terribly conscious of the opportunity costs of spending our, our our brain power at this moment in history when we have this untold potential. We can talk across continents. We can zoom. We can house party. We can whatever you like. We can swap ideas and get to places. We could solve things. We we could solve an awful lot of things including things that people claim to be very interested in solving. when uh, we could do that. So why are we spending so much time focusing on the difference between being genderqueer and being non-binary or being told by idiots that we need to educate ourselves? Uh, why would this be happening? And I think there are quite a lot of reasons. And one is a gigantic loss of... Um, certainty by the adults in the room um there is a, a, a 
very deep sense. I, I wrote about this partly in the Strange Death of Europe, my last book, but one. There is a very strong sense in countries like Britain, in particular, uh, that, um, that, that, that somehow a new story needs to emerge. You hear this in, you know, intelligent, educated people saying things like, you know, I think that men have to step back or I think white people need to speak less, this sort of thing. And, and, and I, I hear that from quite serious places or places that used to be serious, people used to be serious. And I think this is all a, a demonstration that the, the adults have been giving in and they've been willing to hand the thing over to whoever wants to take it on. You know, I mean, there have just been far too few people willing to say, stop that right now. We're not having that. We're not having men played against women. We're not having straight people and gay people played against each other. We're not going to have you playing black and white people against each other. Stop it right now, because we can tell you where it goes. We haven't had enough people doing that. Instead, we have these sort of weak, pathetic, elderly men in particular, who, dis who, who decide to have an easy life, having done well so far in many cases, but have an easy life by giving in to whatever the latest craziest demands are. You, tell, you, you say we have unconscious bias, fine, we'll accept we do. Oh, and we'll roll it out across our corporations. You tell us that all white people are wicked from birth. Okay, I'll swallow that one too. Anything for a quiet life. You tell me that, that our societies that have more rights for women and gay people and all other minorities and any other societies in history are uniquely terrible and awful. Oh, sure. Okay, we'll go along with it because it's a quiet life. And these are contemptible people. And they've been in charge and in positions of power in recent years. And they have totally failed at the task in hand, which is at least to inject some adulthood into an unbelievably juvenile discussion. You know, by saying, for instance, you know, what are you comparing us to? It's one of the things I suggest, as you know, at the end of the Madness of Crowds. Like, who are you comparing us to? When you say that our society is particularly racist, who are you comparing us to? Iran, Venezuela, Zimbabwe? Who have you got? Have you been to any of these places? Can you point to them on a map? Can you tell me anything outside of your incredibly narrow and doctrinaire frame of reference? You don't hear that. You just hear people giving in, giving in all around. Gad Saad, who was on the show, his episode was actually released today. When he came on the show, he said that we need to activate our inner honey badgers. Yes. Honey ba <laughs> the honey badger, which is this small animal about the I've, size up to the, the knee. I've seen it in action. Wow. You should describe it, for, describe it for your listeners who haven't yes. encountered it. So the honey badger is this small animal, which is up to about the, the height of one's knee, about a six foot adult or so. Very small. Uh, looks, you know, quite uh, harmless. But when you encounter one, it's resilience and it's ferocity. If you just type in honey badger, it's like it can take on six lions. Yes. Now, when, when I heard this analogy, two people came to my mind. J.K. Rowling and the lady in Portland, Oregon, that would not 
raise up her hand to the to the BLM crowd. What do you think of those two honey badgers? Um, I, I admire both women. Um, uh, I, I actually wouldn't say they were honey badgers. Um, uh, I, I, I should say, yes, I, I once saw a honey badger in action in uh, Botswana uh, when um, uh, was tracking, following a leopard. And uh, um, it was an amazing sight. This leopard at dusk was uh, suddenly following it for some time. Beautiful, beautiful sight extraordinary creatures and it saw something and my guide said ah you know it's gonna pounce and it did and then there was an almighty fight and hissing and the leopard ran away and cowered <laughs> and the guy said ah it's a honey badger got a honey badger <laughs> i was so pleased i wanted to call up all my political metaphor friends and tell them immediately that i'd seen this um so yes you're right it's a type of uh, animal that 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 is is nice and pliant until until someone comes it it's terrain and then then it fights like hell. Uh, yes, J.K. Rowling is is a type of honey badger in a way. Um, I would say that she's. I mean, she's she she doesn't actually fight like hell. Like she doesn't actually she doesn't assault and throttle the opponents in the way that some of us might. She's much more house trained. <laughs> much nicer person than some of us she undoubtedly um protects her terrain and really admirably really admirably uh she doesn't need to uh she is she's one of the people i see as being the adults in the room she uh is very very left wing by uh, um all of her past pronouncements and actions and donations and more uh, so it's another reminder this isn't some kind of left-right divide. She just really doesn't like it when people pretend that women don't exist. And I hugely admire her uh, for making sure that she continues to make the argument. But as I say, the striking thing about J.K. Rowling in a way is that is she does this so decently. I mean, her, her critics, such as they are, and they're really not, not meaningful uh, in their arguments, uh, but the, the critics say things like, uh, J.K. Rowling wants me dead, you know. Uh, it happened when there was a letter of support signed by Tom Stoppard, Ian McEwen, and many other very distinguished literary figures recently in her support, that they got this as well. Oh, I'm so distressed to discover that Ian McEwen wants to kill me, you know, says trans activist, Xena warrior princess. And uh, th th this, is, this is a totally dishonest and a reprehensible way to behave by these activists. But they are... Um, they aren't actually responded to by Rowling or those figures who signed that letter in in the honey badger way. I mean, they, are, they aren't completely mauled in the way that, in a way, I would like to see them mauled. I mean, I'd like I'd like to see Rowling suing the hell out of everyone. I'd like to see her, you know, really make people pay a price for lying about her and pretending that you know she wants to kill trans people and other outrageous defamatory things um she, but she, she's more restrained than that she makes her case she makes it with great elegance and um and great care and great empathy by the way i mean she doesn't you know she, she doesn't sort of just say you know you know bog off tranny or something you know in the way that people pretend she she quite rightly says 
you know, I respect the fact there are trans people and uh, they need and deserve full rights like everyone else. All of this is perfectly true. I totally agree with this. I, I, I say as much in, in the trans chapter in the Madness of Crowds. There's a real thing that here and, and these are real people we're talking about and they deserve love and compassion and support to the extent that you can give it. But that does not include pretending that uh, chromosomes don't exist. It doesn't include allowing men with big dicks and hairy chests into female only places it doesn't mean anything like that but by the way none of which is is some weird transphobe imagination thing it's it's stuff that's happened and had real life consequences you know uh, some years ago when this argument was gone around and people said well what happens if you put trans women in in women's prisons what if they molest the inmates? And people say, oh, what a transphobic thing to say, and so on. And then there have been cases, a very prominent one in, in the UK, of a man who identified as a woman going into a women's prison uh, and uh, raping a number of the inmates, who included people who had already been subjected to domestic abuse and domestic violence. And so, the, the, you know, you do pay a price for lies. And Rowling and a few others have said, we're, we're not willing to pay that price. We, we want to be able to argue this out and we want to explain the truth as we see it and uh and and they've done that and they've done it in the face of as i say incredibly dishonest people and in spite of unbelievably defamatory and unfair claims by their opponents but they've persevered and i just wish i wish there were more people like that i say in uh, the one of the chapters in madness of crowds you know the, the roll call of remarkable women quite small in number it has to be said a roll call of remarkable women who have fought this corner and uh, deserve great, great respect for having done so. And in the book, you make the case that, look, in this era of mostly reasonable and decent people, the job of the people is to go against the crowd. Yes. And the lady in Portland, Oregon, what, what did we make of her? I think she was in D.C., by the way. Oh, D.C. So what, my uh, yeah, I think the person you're thinking of was in D.C. Yeah, she was, she's uh, um, apparently also, by the way, interesting fact, apparently quite left-wing, a Democrat voter. Uh, she wasn't, um, you know, wasn't the Trump-supporting, um, oh, you know, marcher of some kind. You know, she, she's a reasonable, you know, perfectly mainstream figure who the crowd came for and told her to do something and she said no. And that's what we need more of. We need a lot more of that in our societies. Um, I enormously admired her. I admire, I, I sort of admire anybody who's willing not to go along with the crowd. Um, I'm sure you've had it in your own life. We all have to some extent, um, a moment when you sort of could go along with things which you instinctively feel aren't quite right. And you have to make a, a, a deal with yourself. You have to work it out. And the interesting thing is that that can happen in a split second. It doesn't have to be sort of very carefully thought through over time. Uh, it just split second decision. Something wrong is happening here and I won't go along with it. And that woman in, uh, in DC or the, at the restaurant had that instinct. And, and I wish more people did. But I think you see that a lot of people are cowed at the moment. I think um, a lot of white people in particular are cowed. Uh, and I think that a lot of men in particular are cowed, particularly heterosexual men. Uh, you see this, this weird thing I, I, I mentioned in the book where straight men and particularly straight white men have to behave as these sort of cringing, pathetic figures 
in the hope that the era will pass them by and they'll survive. And this is not, it's not a desirable life to have. And it's not, particularly, it's not, it's not at all good for in, individuals. And it's not good for society either, because there's a massive amount of, of, of things that, that those people are gonna give or could give, which they won't give because they've been turned into something that's contemptible. Do you find it strange that we've been getting lectured about privilege from a prince and a princess? Oh, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes things just write themselves, don't they? Uh, um, yes, uh, the privilege game. I'm not into the privilege game, by the way, because I think it's... I think it's uh, irreducible. Uh, I, I, I think it, you can't ever finish the game. Be and, and can I explain why for a second? Because, please, please. Because first of all, it, it shifts all the time in our lives. I mean, you may say, for instance, some people would, uh, that if you are rich, that you have privilege. Well, you do actually, I mean, you have a form of privilege. You have, you have, a, you have certain advantages over people who are poor certainly over the very poor. Um, uh, if you are very beautiful, you've got a lot of advantages over people who are really, really ugly uh, or just plain, you know, I mean, you're going to have a lot of advantage in your life because of that. People are going to want to uh, uh, be near you uh, more. Uh, you'll find it easier to find a mate uh, and a partner and, and much more. There are lots of things like that, which you could point to and you could say, that's a privilege. But you never do know what other things in that person's life might be going on. Like, do people actually think that everyone who's beautiful is also wildly happy or well? Does everyone actually think that the rich don't suffer anything? And now the, the question then is, what's your hierarchy exactly here? Like, does a rich person with a drug problem and mental health issues ever meet a poor person who's mentally well and physically well. Like, no one knows because you couldn't work that out. There is no way of working that out. What about day to day? What, what about somebody who seems to have every advantage in life and then crashes the whole damn thing? Are they privileged? Were they before? Are they after? And, and who has the time to work that out? I mean, we would have to be permanently asking each other how we were to be answering each other completely honestly and frankly with up to the minute information. We don't have the time. We don't have the time to do that. Now, the result is we make certain sweeping generalizations. Uh, you might make a sweeping generalization such as, I don't know, somebody who speaks like me is wildly privileged, for instance. We do that. We do that a lot with accents, particularly in the UK. Um, uh, but then what do you do after that? You say everyone who's been to a certain university is particularly privileged. Well, they've got a type of privilege. Uh, what about people who've gone to university and they're the first people in their family to have been to university? Are they privileged? Where exactly do they land in this? And so I, I think it's a really unpleasant game to play. And it's, again, it's reductionist. It doesn't understand the complexity of us as people. 
or the variety of ways in which people go up and down in their own lives. Um, but watching members of the Windsor family indulging in this game is, is remarkable because of course they're in, it's such a precarious game for them to play. I wrote about this when uh, um, the Sussexes uh, started doing this, I think last year in, uh, was it Vogue magazine or GQ or one of the other Bibles of the intelligentsia? Uh, uh, um, uh, they did a, an article uh, in which Harry started whittering on about uh, uh, instinctive bias and uh, uh, un uh, unconscious bias and racism and so on. And then they started getting into a variety of other things. And I thought, well, I know where this is going. It's the same boring playbook that, that so many other people have been rolling off in our era. But as I said at the time, watch out, Harry and Meghan, because this ends with the privilege discussion. And it's possible, I would put it no stronger, it's possible that the second son of the heir to the throne uh, is not going to win an attempt to be seen as lacking in privilege. Now, there's a few ways in which he could do so. I mean, again, let's play this very unpleasant game that we're being encouraged to play. You could say, well, he has grown up as the, uh, as the, I think, the third or fourth in line to the throne. And uh, this makes him very privileged. That's true. You could then say he lost his mother when he was very young. So he then loses a certain amount of privilege because he deserves a certain amount of sympathy. And he does, I think, for that. But then how far do you take this and how exactly do you weigh it up? Um, he is uh, attractive. He's had that advantage. I suspect that if he uh, looked less attractive than he did, he'd have found fewer women throwing themselves at him, had fewer sexual and marital opportunities. But even if he was very unattractive, he would have had the advantage of who he is. And a certain number of women would still have thrown themselves at him for the pleasure and privilege of becoming a princess. Um, so, so this goes on and on. And when you, when you start to talk in these terms, you realize just how impossible it is to, to weigh this whole thing up. Um, if you can't do it with one person and you can't with him, how the hell do you think you're gonna do it across an entire society all the time? Do you remember when there was an article written, um, could have been in The Guardian about David Cameron, the former mm. uh, prime minister about his child, the sort of implied right. because he was the prime minister and white that he wasn't a lot, the, the mourning of his dead child, which I think was like eight or something that even mm. because of his privilege, it, it sort of didn't count. Yes, yes. It was a Guardian editorial, by the way. Okay. It was the editorial that day in the Guardian newspaper. Uh, yes, they said that he may have, he may have uh, uh, suffered, but it was privileged suffering he'd had. And you think, how, uh, how inhumane do you have to become to be trying to weigh, try to start weighing up the privilege of a father losing his son? Uh, how, uh, this, this should be a, a warning to everyone of what happens when you play that game. You end up trying to weigh up comparative grief. Comparative grief. That's what it is. And uh, that's where this will always lead. It'll lead to inhumane things like that. 
And by the way, one other point on that. You make yourself, if you play this game, you make, your, you make yourselves incredibly vulnerable as individuals and as a society for the following reason, which is that in, even if, you, if the game were somehow, um, I don't say winnable, but completable, shall we say, even if it were completable as a game, it would rely on everybody always playing the game honestly. Now, is it possible is it possible that there are some people in society, I wouldn't want to guess what percentage they make up, who when they see an advantage will seize it, even if it means using that advantage dishonestly? Might it be the case, for instance, that there are people who would on the outside appear to have had every imaginable privilege in their life, who decide to play the victim because they live in an era where victims are more celebrated than anyone else? Might such a type of person emerge? Might there be people, for instance, who pretend that they've suffered more racism than they have in their lives because they recognize that to, to make that claim will advantage them? Might it be the case that there were people who claimed that they've always been prejudiced against as a woman because it could help them now? Might it be the case that there will be people who will say that they've suffered homophobic uh, um, disadvantages because they will sense that in this moment that could get them a notch further ahead? Oh, you bet there are. You bet there are. Well, how do you weed them out? How do you weed those people out from the sincere people? Answer, we can't. You can't. I can't. Nobody can. And so we get into this terrible game which has no end which can't be won and in which you are constantly vulnerable to dishonest actors that's why i say don't play it don't play it i love it man i appreciate we've only got about 15 minutes left so i want to fire through some quick fire ones mm. one particular one which i enjoyed recently which i know is close to you is the co-op the, the lovely mm. supermarket Making a sort of uh, slight at the spectator. What what did we learn about that? Well, that was fun. Um, <laughs> I love, well, I love as in hate, uh, woke corporations. Uh, we've seen quite a lot of it recently. We've seen Sainsbury's uh, um, uh, advertising that racists shouldn't come to our stores. We are a diverse store. As if, you know the KKK were forever gathering in the cereals aisle of uh, the local Sainsbury's, you know, sort of big risk of bumping into them. Um, these totally fake and, and really and quite and divisive games being played by woke corporations. Uh, it's, by the way, it's becoming increasingly hard to know where, where you can buy your groceries in the UK if you're a reasonable person who does, doesn't like walk, uh, woke corporations because one by one, they've been falling. Um, and Marks and Spencers um, hasn't done the worst, but they did all that crap like the LGBT sandwich uh, um, to celebrate Pride Month, where they made a special sandwich which they promoted, which had I know, lettuce, guacamole, something else, and tomato. Anyhow, it was some soggy mess, but they said it was for gay pride. So anyhow, I mean, I, if you buy your sandwiches, depending on the acronym fitting LGBT, I suppose it's not the best way to do a recipe. But anyway, Marks and Spencer's has done that. Sainsbury's has done that. Many of the banks have done that. But uh, yeah, the co-op, um, uh, which hasn't been terrifically governed in recent years, you might have noticed, uh, not least when it turned out the head of their board was a 
a crazy old crystal meth addict. Uh, uh, um, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, we had great fun in, uh, he was a Methodist minister as well. I think we ran the headline, the spectator on the front page about him with the, the uh, crystal Methodist. I was, I was quite pleased with that one. Um, but he, he, he was ahead of the, 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 uh, the co-op bang and the, and the whole thing was terribly badly run. And, uh, and now they've come out as sort of woke co-op because of course that's what everyone wants when they're buying their, their uh, pork pies and, uh, and milk uh, of a morning. Um, the the, the co-op uh, uh, recently got into a fight with a spectator because somebody somebody who ran the social media account of the co-op responded to a single complainant who said, "How dare I was so disappointed to see that you've advertised in the Spectator this week because the Spectator runs anti-trans material." I think the person in question appeared to be um, objecting not for once, I think, to me, um, but to a number of very distinguished left-wing feminists we've published, such as Suzanne Moore, who have written very eloquently and brilliantly and, and wittily about these issues in The Spectator, because uh, of course we, we publish people from across the political spectrum, as long as they can write well and, uh, and you know, brilliantly, you know, we, we, we have a whole range of voices. And uh, anyhow, this person complained about us having the temerity to publish such women. And um, the co-op uh, social media account said, oh, well, uh, this was a terrible oversight. We're so sorry, it won't happen again. Uh, um, and we won't be advertising with the spectator again. Well, um, that got the ire up of quite a lot of us. Um, uh, um, our chairman, uh, Andrew Neal, um, is, is, isn't a pushover. And he doesn't like that sort of thing. And he won't have, he, he quite rightly just will not have advertisers trying to dictate the editorial policy of the magazine they advertise in. It's an outrageous uh, attempt to encroach upon the free press. And he said, well, actually, it doesn't matter because you're banned from advertising with us. We don't want the co-op adverts. Um, uh, our editor, Fraser Nelson, took the same line. I, I, and uh, I uh, went in as uh, the sort of uh, more paramilitary wing of the spectator uh, in uh, Jihad against the co-op who I'd like to think just couldn't understand why these three Scotsmen <laughs> had, had been had been woken from their lairs. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, in the end, uh, actually, we had a groveling apology from the co-op. And it was a good lesson, a very interesting lesson, by the way, because it demonstrated that quite often with these corporations, the people claiming to make those decisions are very young people with relatively little sway in the corporation. They haven't actually passed it by their bosses. This is a very interesting point. They haven't actually passed it by them. They've been given a certain power by being given the keys to the social media accounts. But that's quite different from the, the heads of the corporations. And in the case of Sainsbury's, for instance, I did this, I did this uh, uh, um, runover of the Sainsbury's board, the board of governors and the board of the board of the Sainsbury's bank. And they are all, they are all with one exception, I think, um, elderly white men. And I said, I think on Twitter, I think, this is this is this is what happens. This is you keep you should know now that you actually you think when you're playing these games, oi, KKK, keep out of Sainsbury's. You think that we think, oh, what a wonderful anti-racist organization we are. We don't. We think you've got something to hide. And the fact is you have, you have, because you're playing a, you're playing a, a game that you're actually not playing. You're pretending to play a game. 
you're playing this game of diversity and wokeness in part because the heads of your corporation don't fit to your own standards. Because actually most of your bosses are men, most of them are white. So if you want to play that game, you're going to lose. You're going to lose the game that you have yourselves instigated, you idiots. Uh, I hope that people learn from this sort of episode. I really hope they do. Because I don't want that. I don't want to spend any of my life going through the boards of supermarkets, counting up how many men there are, or counting up how many people of color there are. I don't want to spend my time doing it. I don't think very many other people do. I think it's an unpleasant thing to have to do. But if you draw attention to yourselves by doing this, this is what you'll get and you will not come out winning. That's the lesson I hope that people take away from it. If you had a short message to the people listening now that are feeling intellectually intimidated, that keep being told what to read or what to think or how high to jump or how to dance, what would you say to those people? Uh, be brave. Be braver. I don't underestimate it at all. I don't underestimate the problem if your boss says you have to read these books. The problem of saying, actually, no, thank you. I work for you, but you don't get to decide what I read. You don't get to tell me what I read. Uh, I don't underestimate the problem with that. I don't underestimate the problem for people sent on these crappy, totally fabricated, false, mentally defunct, you know, bias training sessions. I mean, I can rip these things apart very easily. Anybody can. This is a totally crock thing. It's like being sold some potion with silver in it to beat coronavirus. You know, this is the work of hucksters and fraudsters. But I don't underestimate how difficult it is if you are in the employee ranks of an organization and your bosses try to make you go through this. I don't underestimate at all that it's, it's hard. But everything always is when it means doing the right thing. And this is less hard than almost anything else. Anything else our forebears have done, anything else our ancestors have done. This is really easy in historical terms. Simply requires people to know the arguments to make and to be braver in making them. To say, sorry, I've done nothing wrong. I have done nothing wrong. I am not guilty because of the color of my skin. I'm not guilty because I'm straight. I'm not guilty because I'm a man. And I'm not gonna be made to feel guilty. And what's more, to warn them, to warn the people doing this and say, let me tell you what comes down the road at you if you play this game at me. If you want to play games of historical guilt, fine. They will fly out in every damn direction and you've got it coming to you. I, I don't underestimate the difficulty of doing this. I'm in a lucky position. I almost said a privileged position, but I'm in a lucky position because I'm a writer. I've been a writer all my life. I can say what I think. I know that a lot of people feel they can't, but it's time they did. It's time they did. It is quite wrong to make people limited in their lives because of a character trait over which they have no control. It's a terrible, wicked thing when that happens to people because they're black. And it's a terrible, wicked thing when it happens to people of any other skin color too. It's a, it was a terrible thing when women were not able to 
achieve what they could achieve in their competency and potential because they happen to be women. Um, everybody should hope that that situation has stopped in the societies we are in, or is at least as limited as it can be. And sadly, there are places around the world today in which women simply have no chance. Many countries I've traveled to across the Middle East, across Africa, across the whole world, where women can't achieve their potential. It's a terrible thing. It limits your entire society. It takes half of your society away from achieving its potential. So we know that this is terrible. We should agree it's terrible. And it's also terrible to limit people's potential because they happen to be men and to tell them that they're toxic, like Gillette and the American Psychological Association and pretend that being a man has something terrible about it or is only terrible. I mean, we've got to stop this and people have got to speak up against it. And they've got to speak up now. The topic of today's conversation has been the madness of the crowds to stray our audience away from um, all these terrible woke books, white fragility. I'm sure there's a load of others out there, which are just not worth reading. What would you recommend to our audience for some books, which are worth their time? Yeah. I, I read a lot of those sort of white fragility books in order that other people don't have to, <laughs> by the way, she, she, that great fraudster, Robin DeAngelo, she sold very well. I don't know if people actually have read her partly because she's sort of unreadable. Uh, one of the things I try to do always the man's of crowds is in other books is, is to make sure that I make often fairly complex things actually simpler than they are. I mean, as in put, you know, you, you sum them up. I try to sum things up and make them clearer, not simpler, clearer, I'd say. A, a really bad writer like Robin DiAngelo takes incredibly simple ideas and makes them sound wildly complex. Uh, it's a very bad trait. It's actually, it's a rubbish trait if you're a writer. Um, uh, but, but yes, so I, tr I try to explain these things so that people can find their way through with a minimum loss of time, you know? I don't want people to have to spend their lives reading this crap. I don't have to spend any time reading it. And so one of the things I try to do is to give people the tool to make sure they don't have to do that. They know the arguments against it, clear it away as the flotsam that it is and uh, move on with your life and achieve what you can achieve. Um, there are other books now uh, that, have, uh, that are trying to explain some of the same thing. Uh, there's a very detailed, very good, slightly denser than mine book uh, that came out recently that I reviewed in the Times called Cynical Theories by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckridge. I much recommend that for anyone who wants to get more into the weeds of the total craziness that, uh, that is going on in academia. As you know, I mean, I try to do everything from academia to pop culture much more and explain how this has all gone so wrong and how we can make it right. Um, cynical Theories goes more into the, into the academic area. Um, I'm looking forward to reading Gad Stan's new book. Uh, he's promised to send it to me. Um, and uh, there are a number of other books. Uh, there is a backlash. That's the good news. There is a backlash going on uh, in the world of books, in the world of ideas, in the world of articles, and much more. And I, 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 I'm, I'm very confident. You know, I've always had this belief that it doesn't matter if you have 99 lies, if you've got one truth. And people, if they can see through the lies they're being told, if they can be assisted through the lies, uh, we'll be able to get to not just the truth about this deeply cynical game that our era is playing, but onto, as I say, the things which, which we should be doing. And uh, there, is, there is a growing 
growing library of books that people can go to. Obviously, uh, I would particularly uh, uh, urge them to read The Madness of Crowds, but that's probably just a personal preference of my own. We will link that below. My last question for you today, before we get you to sign off and tell these guys where they can connect with you, is the question we ask at the end of every interview. What makes a life worth living? Very good question. What a good way to end. Um, a, a lot of things, I think. I um, think the most obvious one is to have meaningful relationships with people you love. Um, to find uh, around you relationships of depth uh, with your family, your loved ones, your partners, your friends, uh, not to chase uh, ephemeral and uh, shallow relationships, but deep ones. And uh, that requires work. It requires time, commitment, and much more. Uh, but it will reward you far more than however many thousands of likes you get on Instagram from total strangers who won't notice you when you're gone and didn't notice you much when you were here. Um, I think it is to immerse yourself in your time, but not to be a creature of your time. Uh, as a quote of Schiller I'm very fond of, uh, he said, be a part of your century, but do not be its creature. Um, reach for truth and know that know that the that it's not a game that it's not something you do for its own sake but because it'll get you somewhere search for meaning not because the search is the point but because there is meaning and that you should try to find it make sure that by the end of your life, you are wiser and know more than you did at the start. Don't find yourself in that pitiful situation of not knowing what you did or what it was about. Um, try to find your place in the universe and try to find some peace with it. Um, search for the big questions and immerse yourself in them. If you don't believe in God, try to work your way towards the things that are God-shaped. And don't waste your time. That isn't to say, by the way, that you spend your entire life, or we should spend our entire life, involved only in the deep questions. But don't skip them. Don't spend all your time on Instagram and ignore the unbelievable wealth of knowledge and human wisdom and beauty that has been given to us and which we've inherited from amazing men and women who've gone before us. Uh, we have an extraordinary opportunity in this generation. We have access to all the world's music for free. We have access to almost all the world's literature almost for free. And that's not a small thing. Uh, I would always say, as somebody who's deeply immersed in the arts, that one of the purposes of, of the arts is not just to distract us in some way, but that it points us towards truths. So read, listen, study, and live. 
as much as you can, as fulsomely as you can. And that would be a life well lived, or at least the start of finding your way to that. That was beautiful, man. Where can these guys connect with you and what closing messages do you have? I can be found on, uh, well, my books can be found on all uh, uh, websites that sell books and in any remaining places that sell books physically and you're allowed into without having to be uh, hosed down and uh, um, covered in gel and made to wear a mask. Um, my Twitter handle is at Douglas K. Murray. Um, I'm not on Instagram or Facebook, uh, but my articles are all published in uh, most of the major British newspapers. Uh, and magazines, prim- principally at The Spectator, uh, but also multiple other venues, and in the US at National Review and elsewhere. And uh, and yes, I think, I think probably, oh, and YouTube, of course, where, although I don't, I, I do have my own channel, there's not very much that goes up there, but uh, um, uh, you can always find various things I've said posted by various maniacs onto YouTube and, um, um, and uh, dispersed far and wide. <laughs> Um, and uh, it's just been a great pleasure to be with you and with your uh, viewers and listeners. And um, I hope you and all of them stay well and um, well for the uh, time ahead because it's going to be fascinating. Douglas, man, thank you so much for coming on. It's a great pleasure. Well, guys, that wraps up another week for the Freedom Pack podcast. A major coup to get Douglas on. Guys, just as a reminder that this episode is live on our YouTube. The video format of this is on there should you wish to watch the video interview. We also release a healthy, wealthy and wise newsletter which will be linked below. Thank you guys. I hope you finish this week strong and we will see you back on Monday for a brand new episode.